Last time it worked really well, so hopefully this time it works as well. Do I? How are my levels? Do I sound okay? You sound fine to me. Okay. You've got bigger. You've got bigger. You've got bigger peaks. You know how? Right? <laughs> I show bigger peaks. Yeah, that actually got this uh, set up as well. Oh, nice. I'm like such an asshole now recording with like at the computer with the like mic stand next to my computer. It's like in my home office. It's like, wow, I'm a real prick. <laughs> yeah, I, re- I, I realize my microphone's just been set up for the past two weeks. It was like <laughs> if anybody complete, walks by, they're it, just yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. Somebody saw it the other day and I was quite embarrassed. <laughs> is he a podcaster <laughs> just before when when i was about to come up and do this with you and and the listeners um <laughs> i was trying to explain to one of my housemates that i'm about to go and record my podcast but for some reason <laughs> i just couldn't say the word podcast <laughs> I'm about to go so i was just <laughs> gonna go and do the thing with the thing that I've, I've just been reading this book for hours about that's why i'm gonna go and do it but you no know. God, like, no, yeah, and then you leave calm. the room and they're like, they're like, what's Dan up to? And they're like, I don't know, some real sicko stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know. Something really gross. <laughs> yeah, whatever they could imagine. I'd rather they were thinking that than... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, dear. Anyway, oh, well. Anyway. Well, Dan, um, we're back again. Another couple of weeks. Another goddamn book. Um, we'll get to it. The the talk of the town. We are recording this. We'll get to the book that we read. You and I. You just finished this. I mm. finished this at like yeah, finished, midnight last finished, night. Finished. Yeah, finished. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I finished very finished in the so. sense that I scrolled up to and then looked at the last page. <laughs> no, don't worry. Yeah, exactly. I have I have read substantive amounts of this book. We're going to have a general discussion around we'll some of the time. ideas raised about in, in this book. Yeah, it's, nice cover, know, which is what we always do. Yeah, good font. You know, <laughs> great book. Yeah. Um, but uh, just to say, that is to say, uh, today's Thursday, November 10th. 10th thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, episode's coming out tomorrow in like 12 that's... hours. Okay. People are still talking about the uh, American midterms. That's just to date it a little bit. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't. What's the takeaway, I guess, if we need to talk about this at all? Just that there was supposedly going to be this big Republican uh, wave, and there just kind of wasn't. And right now, it looks like, I don't think anything's changed in the last few hours. It looks like Republicans are probably going to take the House, but not by much. That could change. And nobody really knows what's going on with the Senate. Because I think Georgia's going to a runoff, and nobody knows what's going off with, I think, Nevada and Arizona. So just to say, it looks like a little bit of gridlock. But um, it is surprising, I suppose, because usually, right, like two years into a president's first term, like they lose the House, right? Or they lose Congress or something like that happens. And it didn't, it's not too disastrous for old Joe, which is insane because like inflation is, <laughs> consumer inflation is at like 8% and gas prices were like $7 a gallon. So it's kind of crazy that I suppose that happened. Everybody is kind of making it seem like, ooh, is this the end for old Donald Trump? Uh, we shall see. And uh I don't know. We, we don't make predictions on the show, as we've said many times. Yeah. Have, have any of his notable disciples um, succeeded or failed? Are there any yeah. honorable mentions, notable? Uh... Well, uh, Lauren, B- Lauren Boebert, <laughs> is her name, she lost. <laughs> and um, what's, uh, what's his name? The big one, I guess, is that Ron DeSantis in florida like crushed his opponent like it wasn't even close okay so and now everybody's like oh desantis everybody's gonna be hopping ship okay i'm not scared of big scary desantis i don't Mm. know man whatever whatever's gonna happen is gonna happen um yeah i think we can all stop pretending that florida is like a swing state though (laughs) (laughs) it's like it's a republican state we can just leave it at that yeah 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 yeah. Yeah. 
So another meaningless, auspicious occasion in American politics. Exactly. Yeah, but one where everybody's overhyped and under under delivered. Under delivered. Yeah. (laughs) That's the Biden promise. No, no, no. Everybody's (laughs) still got their same takes. Nothing's changed for anybody at all, Uh, except if you're you happen to be you know someone who lives in what has now become a Republican state, and they're just going to change all the laws on abortion and change all the laws on like LGBTQ issues. In which case, that really fucking sucks um that's not anything to be like oh they're all the same right but um that is a bummer republicans obviously we don't like them but uh we'll take what we can get these days so 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 what we're saying is um the democrats have done better than expected and predictably that's going to make no difference to anybody's lives at all yeah 100 percent. yeah i think now it's just like looking forward what does it actually mean for the next election in 2024 where there's actually going to be a presidential election and nobody has any idea. So I'm not going to pretend like I do. (laughs) Great. Great. Well, thanks for that. um, (laughs) Fund update. Yeah, exactly. One thing I will say though, Dan, I would, I would like to get your take on this. Um, People are talking about now that maybe Republican voters are split on Trump. And the only way I can see that actually happening, because we, you know, last week when we talked about the, um, uh election not actually election over here and rishi sunak wound up becoming the prime minister we're talking about the contradiction in the uh, tory party right and i've just been thinking about that a lot because it's like obviously that contradiction a similar contradiction exists in all political parties all bourgeois political parties right because like the stupid the republican party has like the stupidest coalition ever where it's like big bourgeoisie people who presumably want less um, regulation in their industries, real estate, energy, some agriculture, right? Stuff like that. And then also like small business owners and like, you know, schmucks, <laughs> fools, perhaps one could say. Um, and so it's interesting when people say like, maybe this time is up for Trump because they're like, oh, the Republican Party's splitting. But if we actually think materially about what could that possibly mean, who who is, who? what factions are like jumping ship from Trump? You know what I mean? And the only thing that I could, if that is actually happening, the only thing I could possibly think of is that maybe some big bourgeoisie types are like, all right, that things got a little weird with Trump. Maybe, maybe we need someone a little bit more stable, but I don't know. That's the only thing I can think of in terms of like a potential split, because I feel like all the like schmucks who voted for Trump are still like stoked. All the small business owners seem like they're still stoked unless they're like Florida DeSantis guys, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much it's, um, I don't know how much this um, aligns with your understanding, but I've sort of come to think of like the Democrats as being the big bourgeoisie sort of political party and the Republicans as being the sort of like populist or Mm. sort of like small business owner, petty bourgeois kind of suppose, I suppose, yeah, but also like there are industries that generally support the Republicans, at least in terms of money. And it is the industries like big, big industry types like i was saying like uh you know your maybe defense i'm not actually sure about defense but like you know energy and stuff like that like whereas the big industrialist or capitalist whoever who support the democratic party i've always taken to understand is it's like tech people people who like their industries require uh, regulation in some way but that could be me just being you know simplifying things well and maybe we're just in one of those moments in the middle of a political cycle where there's lots of things up for grabs Mm. everybody's these things will coalesce around elections and then some of the coalitions or the constituencies that will come to be aligned with one political party or other are kind of up for grabs at the moment um i guess there's another question of what the uh which elements of the electorate are wavering or 
and uh, when you were talking then i was thinking more in terms i was wondering about it more in terms of like the trump coalition such that that was a thing that existed which elements of that are um breaking away and i suppose there were always there were the sort of like there were the never trumper republicans but and then there were the sort of dogmatic maga voters the people those people that were mobilized that might not have voted republican or might not have voted for a long time or might have otherwise voted democrat in the past but then i would imagine the the mass majority of people who voted republican are all the people that always vote republican and uh yeah i don't know i kind of like okay we'll just go they're not that particularly wedded to trump and like whoever looks like they're going to be the winner or like um whoever looks like they can coalesce some of these other uh, constituencies around them so that may be where your DeSantis is or someone else is stepping in and um, we shouldn't see uh, Donald Trump as any it's particularly um, aberrant in that kind of process you know like he's I mean that's how that's how presidential candidates are selected and that's how presidents come to be presidents it's just like running to construct a coalition and we're in the middle of, well, we're about, I suppose we're about to see the that process kick off again where people start running for be president i guess i'm I'm just gonna shoot myself before it happens oh my god it will be funny though i will say trump came out and uh, before the election called uh desantis ron de sanctimonious which i thought was pretty good i was like ah he's always got a quip <laughs> say what you will he's always got a quip he must just have a room full of people coming up with those <laughs> monkeys at typewriters that's what that's, yeah, exactly. what's going on in his head <laughs> exactly <laughs> Yeah, inside of Donald Trump's head is just that scene from The Simpsons with Mr. Burns and all the typewriters. It was the blurst of times. <laughs> yeah. All right. So we'll see. Um, yeah. it, the, it seems like the Republican primary, unless they can sort it out behind the scenes, is just going to be a shit show. Um, it would be interesting. I don't know if this is happening. And it is worth, you know, waiting for comment until like demographic information about who voted how comes out. But I'm not going to do that. I'm going to comment right now. It'll be very interesting to see. Um, Obviously, where the votes went and everything, but, you know, the potential, this probably won't happen, but the potential for, like, the leadership of the Republican Party to really want to go one way and the, you know, such as it exists, everyday voters of the um, Republican Party wanting to go just with Trump is a possibility. So we'll Mm -hmm. see. Who knows? Either way, it's going to be great. It's just going (laughs) to be great. Um, Oh, man, if, if Biden runs again, too. Oh, it would just be one for the ages. I'll say that. Um, speaking of contradictions, Dan, oh boy, we say this a lot where we say like, we, uh, we can't put it off any longer, but boy, we really can't put this one off any longer. Um, I don't have the book in front of me. That's stupid. Um, where we read an entire book this time, Dan, once again, George Comneenals, George C. Comneenals, Rethinking the French Revolution. It's what's on the tin. Our man is rethinking the French Revolution. He's doing some historical it's materialism. Very, it's a very circuitous route that he takes to get to the French Revolution. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, yeah, it was long. Well, actually, it wasn't long. It was 200 pages, but it felt very long. Um, I don't know. I struggled to get through this a bit. Um, and I don't know if that's just because this book was written, rewritten from his dissertation. Like this was basically just his dissertation. And then he rewrote it into a verso book. Um, and so it definitely comes like most of the book, the vast majority of the book is him doing, I think, what you uh, called when you we were reading it, just a literature review, being like, here are all of the different things that people have said about this topic. Um, and then about 130 pages in talking about Marx, not talking about the French Revolution at all. And then in the conclusion, 
doing the whole rethinking the French Revolution thing and applying his ideas. Um, so it was a bit of a slog to get through. But once I got to those chapters on Marx, excuse me, and um, historical materialism, then finally his conclusion, I really was pretty blown away. I really, I really think that this wound up being one of my favorite things we've read on history, even though it is this kind of thing where he's just talking about one event. Um, it does have broad implications for the way that we study history. And I wound up, yeah, I wound up being pretty excited by this. Um, it was very good. What'd you think? Yeah, I think I was similarly um, exhilarated by those <laughs> past couple of the last few chapters of it. Yeah, when I initially looked at the contents, I was like, I kind of wish I just could skip to the big long chapter on historical materialism. Yeah, so, and, or, and I, would, I wish I'd just gone with that conviction and suggested that, yeah, maybe we'll just skip all the rest of it and, and just read that. Um, it does feel like throughout the entirety of this book, there is some promise. He's promising something. He's like, I have this <laughs> sort of understanding, this conception of what Marx's methodology is as regards the study of history and what we ought to, how we ought to define the process of uh, historical materialism. I'm not going to tell you that right now, and we'll get to it later, and we'll get to it later. <laughs> what what we can say for this uh, that him and that promise is that he does actually deliver. Yes. And quite frustratingly, he delivers that in the series of about three or four pages. And it literally is in his conclusion. This type of book should be banned. I'm sorry. You can't do that. You can't be like, I'm going to rethink the French Revolution and then only do it in the conclusion. I I, wand I was wondering whether it was just somebody at Verso was just like, we're not publishing <laughs> the book about like all your academic beefs, internal to Marxism, <laughs> about historical materialism and how like all the structuralist Marxists are full of shit and how E.P. Thompson is wrong <laughs> and how this person is wrong and that person is wrong. No, we just like the French Revolution will sell. Okay, we'll just slap the size of French Revolution on the top of it and then you can just like publish whatever you want. I like yeah. that a recurring character on the show has become the guy at Verso. <laughs> like <laughs> publishing people's books. It's because we keep being stupid enough to get caught out by these sort of publishing yeah, exactly. tricks. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's because it we out. don't give a huge amount of thought to what we're going to read we're like this seems like a really good idea actually i've no, seen this no. mentioned somewhere yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i mean actually this this book we've been meaning to read ever since like episode three i think because yeah um, it's been on he, my shelf he gets a he gets a mention in ellen mixes woods the origins of capitalism when Jesus. she makes she makes that um she makes quite a striking statement that like maybe the French Revolution was a bourgeois revolution but not capitalist and maybe the English Revolution was capitalist but not bourgeois mm. um, and then she references this book and so it it has been on our minds and I'm glad we've finally gotten to it um, yeah and I'm I'm glad we finally managed to wade through to the sort of meaty center um, and that's not to say that there isn't there isn't uh, really interesting stuff in the first 130 pages of this book but it's more like it touches on a debate and then it pulls away from it and you get a little bit of a a little bit of um an introduction to something so i do feel like i have some grounds for understanding some of these debates that i didn't used to know about um and it is it is very interesting his, his criticism of orthodox marxism and where that goes throughout the book is quite vital i think um so there's definite definite merit to reading the entirety of this book but also um definitely recommend sort of like Everywhere. reading the last 70 or 80 pages um, yeah. particularly if you're looking for a very concise explanation to what um not, not even what marx's historical analysis is because actually his his point is that marx doesn't really engage in historical analysis all that much and one of the problems with marxist um 
Marxist study of history is that the orthodox Marxists in particular are so wedded to the what Marx actually said that they didn't really consider the fact that Marx actually wasn't that interested in the, yeah. he wasn't a historian and he wasn't engaged in a study of history um but we'll get onto that anyway yeah, yeah. It, yeah it's you brought up Ellen Meekson's wood I think I could be wrong about this and I might just be saying this because they're both Canadians but I think he was her student at one point I again don't quote me on that sounds right Okay, why not? A couple of Canadian Marxists. I mean, it's, it's the kind in. of lie we can perpetuate and it's going to have absolutely no material effect in the <laughs> yeah, world. Yeah, exactly. So. exactly. You know what? Speaking of which, let me yeah, just uh, bring listen, this Tell all your down. friends. <laughs> we'll, <laughs> yeah. we'll start a scurrilous academic rumor. <laughs> yeah. We'll get sued by the Wood Estate. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, let me just bring this podcast down for a second. Um, he died a couple of months ago, which is very sad. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, you know. This isn't quite a uh, another example of what we did to Donald Rumsfeld. No, not Donald Rumsfeld. Robert McNamara. Who did no, we kill? Donald Rumsfeld. Donald Rumsfeld. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. I think McNamara was probably long dead by before we started this podcast. That's fair. I might have made it long, long dead, but you know, long dead. Yeah. Um, but yes, unfortunately, he died in August, which is a shame because he would have loved our podcast. Um, I mean, we would have loved to have talked to him. So yeah, we would have. He seems. I was looking, watching some interviews with him. He seems like just a jolly little guy. Um, all right. So if we hop into it, I mean, yeah, like you said, that first 130 pages or whatever, he's going through the history of the history of the French Revolution. So he's studying the historiography of the way that the revolution is studied. And he comes to some pretty interesting conclusions. And he starts off by basically surveying the revisionist accounts, right? Because he at first kind of splits the way that the revolution is studied up into two parts. You got your social theory, which is basically just bourgeois capitalist revolution overthrew the aristocracy, and then capitalism was there. Um, and then you have the revisionists who kind of came along, a guy named, I think, Alfred Co Cobbin, which is a, a very English name, which is very funny. Um, he was one of these kind of more liberal types who came along and actually did some history and was like, well, that's not true. That's not true at all. A, because most of the people who were engaged in this revolution weren't capitalists. Well, none of them were capitalists at all. And you can't say that this ushered in capitalism because the capitalism wouldn't be a thing for a very long time after that. Um, and so if that's true, then what does that leave us with, with the revolution? Um, and so Kamnino kind of puts, I hope that's how you say his name. He, he kind of puts himself in this position of agreeing with the revisionists by saying this critique is correct you know and if their critique is correct that the, that this was not a capitalist revolution what does that mean for marx and what does it mean for marxism and so he kind of puts himself in this position where he does still want to salvage marx and he still wants to salvage some kind of idea of if not modes of production modes of exploitation and this being some kind of transitory huge deal in the marxist canon um but he then kind of sets himself up with this monumental task of like trying to kind of rethink Marx's entire historical method. This is very much uh, an example of one of those books where he's like, everybody is wrong except for me. And it's funny because at a certain point he just goes, also Marx was wrong. And who is the person that we can turn to to figure out how to fix Marx? And he goes, Marx is. And so then, you know, he cut, we'll get on to how he does that in a little bit. But um, it's it's worth realizing that like, you know, we're allowed to step out of the Marxist canon. This book was very controversial, I think, when it came out because it made so many Marxists uncomfortable because it's like he's kind of doing away with the idea of modes of production a little bit and getting rid of this idea that the French Revolution wasn't capitalist and that it didn't overthrow the nobility and that, wait a minute, there might have just been one heterogeneous ruling class that was the nobility and the bourgeoisie. How could that possibly happen? It makes everybody's brains explode. But um, 
yeah, that's the basis for all this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he he starts with these two counterposing narratives, right? The one that is referred to as the social interpretation of the French Revolution, if I'm correct. And that is the one that we would kind of initially recognize as being Marxist um, or, or orthodox Marxist in that it's arguing that, as you say, like the French Revolution was the transition point between two modes of production and most importantly, what brought that about was a conflict between two classes, right? Between uh, sort of like decaying um, uh, ruling class, the decaying ruling class of feudalism that had become a sort of fetter on historical development and economic production and a new rising bourgeoisie. Um, and that was um, the interpretation of the French Revolution that was put forward by historians very early on, even in the, the beginning of the 19th century, that was kind of the narrative that was the, the very first sort of historians that were writing about the French Revolution were beginning to see it in those kind of terms. Um, and what, and obviously in the 20, and sort of, I think what happened was like, obviously Marxism in general and Marxism in academia and in uh, historical study and in the universities became so prevalent, particularly in, in France, that Marxists came to hold all of these really significant academic positions in um, in universities and came to sort of set that sort of narrative. And so this interpretation of the French Revolution, the social interpretation, came to be associated with Marxist historical study and the the sort of like... Um, the defense, I suppose, of Marx that's done in this book um, is predicated on this idea of actually, well, no, it's not the Marxists that are saying, putting forward this particular type of interpretation of the French Revolution as being uh, a bourgeois revolution, quote unquote. Actually, it's um, it's you guys, it's the liberal ideologues, it's the liberal historians who came up with this idea. Um, it's, it's actually nothing to do with Marx. If Marx had a fault, it's basically being too heavily... Um, influenced by that historical narrative when he was beginning to develop his ideas and so anything that lingers on in Marx's writing all of those little pieces of um, textual evidence that can be provided by quote-unquote orthodox Marxists for um, the sort of orthodox interpretation of the French Revolution that says it was a bourgeois revolution all of that stuff actually draws its lineage back to all of these little um, liberal um, sort of taint, taint, tainting of Marx's writing by the sort of like liberal ideological analysis. Um, well, importantly too, though, it comes, it, it taints Marx's own writing because Marx is influenced by these kind of liberal ideas of history. And he makes this kind of, you know, a distinction that a lot of people like to say, he doesn't exactly call it young Marx, old Marx, but he talks about a series of Marx's writings as not being sufficiently materialist enough and specifically not following the method of historical materialism that Marx himself uh, puts forward. And so critically, he says that like, you know, two of the greatest, basically he says that if you really want to understand historical materialism, you have to read Capital. And 
the three volumes, that's Marx's magnum opus. If you go back and read the German ideology, he says that the German ideology it really doesn't come across well in this book because he's, you know, he says that it falls prey to exactly what you're saying, these kind of like liberal ideas of stages of history and, you know, modes. And it's obvious when you read it, right? Because you go through the German ideology and there's stuff about him like the Asiatic mode. Uh, yes, it all worked like this. And obviously even just saying that feudalism is one thing is uh, incorrect. Um, but the, so it's kind of, it's not necessarily that the liberals, like liberal ideology has like tainted Marx's writings. It's that a lot of Marx's own writings weren't sufficiently materialist enough, kind of because Marx wasn't necessarily interested in dedicating himself to that. He talks about this like dialectical antagonism, but also, you know, like, uh, working together of Marxist thought between like abstract theory and ideology. And he makes the point that Marx was very much a revolutionary, right? Like he was interested in how can we get from where we are now to socialism and all of his life's work, pretty much the things that are very much worthwhile capital in his work with, you know, international and everything were dedicated to that point to understanding where we are and how to get to where we're going. And everything that kind of came before him, he kind of just took for granted from Adam Smith and a lot of these people. Um, and that very much in people focusing on the German ideology or even parts of the Communist Manifesto um, is detrimental to any kind of Marxist thought because he's kind of trying to rescue Marx from himself, right? And rescue Marxists from Marx to a certain extent. And by really just focusing on capital, but also the Grundrisse, like he's able to really create a good definition for what historical materialism is and then the last five pages as you say turn around and use it on the uh, french revolution yeah i think there's there's different different types of materialism happening here um and he definitely talks about it in two different ways he talks that, about there being like a liberal form of materialism and then a kind of more marxist or historical materialist materialism um clearly the sort of liberal interpreters of the French Revolution are looking to um, material um, historical events and substance, real analysis. They're trying to find a real material analysis of the relationships that are happening in society kind of thing. Um, but what Marx is, what Marx is um, attempting to do with his material analysis is study particularly social relations and social relationships and sort of like turn a sort of materialist um, analysis toward like the actual social relationships that are the substance of this um, process of history, I suppose. Um, so I think maybe what's happening is there's just a different type of materialist analysis being put forward by Marx. And um, I mean, there's a few things that came to, my mind, came to my mind as I was thinking, what just hearkening back to what I was saying a minute ago about like, um, Marx's inheritance from sort of like uh, liberal interpreters of the French Revolution, this sort of like stagist analysis of history, which we always associate with Marxism, is also something which he has like uncritically. Well, later on, he sort of he uh, he puts some criticism into it, but like uncritically adopts this sort of like multiple stagist development of history. Um, now, the criticism that Marx put toward that analysis is one that's going to seem very familiar because it's it's the same one that sort of we've talked about in terms of Ellen Mix's word and Robert Brenner, right? It's this kind of like um sort of reading the present back into the past. So like what the capitalists what the sort of like the liberal interpreters of or the liberal materialists are doing when they're interpreting history is to 
um, pick some kind of like social behavior like commerce or trade or something and see it as being um in a sort of like uh as developing over history kind of thing as like the fetters are being moved out of the way and this sort of like thing which is the process of history throughout is coming to fruition kind of thing um and what marx points out is that no these different um what the what the um liberal historians call modes of subsistence or the early political economists call modes of subsistence and what Marx turns into modes of production. Um, Marx points out, no, they have their own, these modes of production have their own internal logic. Um, and so it's, it's sort of like in, it's internal to the mechanisms of feudalism. We have to ask why did feudalism become capitalism? It's not something external to the specific modes of production that runs throughout that is actually directing historical development, I suppose. Yeah, he gets to, it's like the idea of, you know, like Neo-Smithian ideas, right? That exactly as you're saying, everything was there and then we're just trying to get to this natural state. Francis Fukuyama, end of history, where we finally have capitalism. And there's an equal exchange of all commodities, including your labor and everything's fine. Um, and you're absolutely right. Like one of the most important things that Marx did was take this ideology and basically say in this way of studying history and basically say, no, all of these relations are historically determined. They're very historically specific, right? And so Kam Neenal in this book outlines three quick steps, three easy steps that you can do right now to do historical materialism. And the first one is you need to, easy enough, identify uh, where class exploitation is taking place. And we'll get to this because this one has been the big mistake of it everyone other than him in studying the French Revolution. Him and Marx. Him and Marx, oh, no. yeah. Well, I mean, not necessarily <laughs> Marx, actually. Yeah. Um, and then he says you need to figure out the character of the state. Again, this is very important to understanding the French Revolution. And you need to recognize the continuities and the things that uh, are not uh, a continuity. There's a word for that. Um, amongst history. One of them. And because, you know, he used it when we talk about historical continuities, right? Anyone and their dog could tell you that like capitalism has changed from when it first started, right? But he's saying that the historical continuity of capitalism is the base mode of exploitation, right? It's the way that we extract surplus labor. It's the way that, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so to get back to that first one, to kind of get us into talking about the French Revolution, I was very excited, by the way, to read this book because I was like, man, we're going to talk about Danton. We're going to talk about like Saint-Just. We're going to talk about all these like insane people. It's going to be awesome. And like oh, these names come up like twice in the book. <laughs> it's like, okay, all right, I see what's going on here. Um, so yeah, that, that first step, the identification of class exploitation, he is saying everyone is wrong about France, except for me and kind of the revisionists actually, because that critique that the revisionists make of the social interpretation of the French Revolution, which is a fairly obvious one to do if you just do history and don't just conform to ideology, Marxist or otherwise, is to say that these people were not capitalists who did the revolution and there was not capitalism immediately following the revolution either. Um, but what he does is in identifying the class exploitation, he basically says that there was a homogenous ruling class group and it included not just the nobility, of the absolute estate, but also the bourgeoisie, right? So he talks about how they, the state itself was extremely important to, well, yeah, surprise, surprise, understanding the state is important to understanding the French Revolution itself. Because he was saying that because of this kind of process in which you could ennoble yourself 
and in which you could become a you know a more respected member of the ruling class if you're part of the bourgeoisie by either just like buying um a peerage or whatever it would be called in france or something like that this was like a very vital part of the bourgeoisie maybe feeling like they were a bit of a junior partner in the entire whole ruling class relationship and so to a certain extent he basically says that the revolution was almost a ruling class civil war over the powers that existed within the state of well holding power and surplus extraction and the ability to control that and so this bourgeois class was bourgeois and it was not capitalist you know he goes through a list of the uh the makeup of the bourgeois class and it's like mainly lawyers and like junior level members of the state who weren't nobles so like magistrates bailiffs things like that those were by far the majority of the bourgeois class but also like there were some people who were peasants who were able to some by hook or by crook get enough land to live off that land, get enough land to live off that land through rents or through something like that. And also to a very small extent, um, some of them were merchants, usually merchants. I think when in France, if they made enough money, they would just buy a peerage and just become part of the nobility. There were very few, I think, who did. Yeah, he said that merchants quite often were just trying to accumulate so they could buy land. Like it's yeah. like holding land and um, therefore having the right to uh, extract rents. Um, it's a very funny, a of... it, yeah, it's just, it's a very interesting dynamic where it's like, oh, actually the merchants here were trying to not be merchants. It's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it points to, well, it points to the idea that these weren't capitalist economic relations that were happening. Exactly, um, yeah. And we've, I mean, we've talked about this before when we talked about Ellen Mix's wood. Wood's interpretation and what she says in her book is that no France was developing into something else it was kind of like a non-capitalist trajectory into modernity so what happened is France in particular although there were other states that were doing this as well had developed a kind of like an absolutist state form where um, they'd managed to build something close to quite a modern sort of like nation state structure but maintain um, the basic uh, exploitative class relations that are particular to feudalism, which were, as we've talked about before, like extra economic rather than economic. They were predicated on uh, rents largely and more and more so also on taxation. So that's why one of the most important aspects of class relations in or sort of like ruling class class relations in France were around all these sort of like state bureaucratic uh, positions because they then entitled you to a certain portion of um, state taxes, which were in a lot of ways like a, a statewide form of um, extra economic exploitation of the the working class, which was under feudalism, like the poor peasantry kind of thing. Who um, he also makes the point actually owned quite a lot of land as well, but they just didn't own enough sufficient land to actually secure their own subsistence. So there was this mix in the peasantry of, okay, we own a piece of land, but also we have to rent some small parcel of land um, as well. Kind of thing. Yeah, generally, exactly. I think you were saying that most peasants just didn't have enough to live solely off of that land, which is a really interesting idea. This all makes me think too, if this actually was a different path to modernity or if it was inevitably going to, you know, well, I don't know. It's an interesting thing to think about just in terms of where this was going, what was inevitable and what wasn't. Um, but just to, again, to kind of go back to discussing how this power was shared, 
I'll read something real quick where he says that both bourgeois and nobles then shared the essential social relations of property ownership and state office, which were the fundamental forms of surplus extraction in the Ancien Regime. The very acquisition of noble status was in itself a function of these relations, and commercial enterprise was primarily a means of acquiring the wealth for landed property and office. Um, and it's interesting because then he kind of goes on to discuss how it's a mistake that a lot of us make to think of a ruling class as one kind of like happy family, right? Because we've spoken about this a lot on the show before, where in modern times, you know, the, the capitalist ruling class is very much anything but a happy family. They have interests that are opposed to each other directly and indirectly. <clears throat> and this is why we get, you know, we were just talking about like the different types of bourgeoisie that support the Democrats versus the Republicans, that support the Tories versus labor, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and this, this obviously happens throughout history, right? He gives the examples as poor knights and kings and feudal times who went to war with each other, but were still part of the same ruling class. Um, and so he's making the point that while this was like a homogenous ruling class of the bourgeoisie and the nobility, that we should very much not think that they ever really like, that they didn't have interests that weren't opposed to each other, right? Because they very much did. It's just that they were able to, for a certain amount of time, kind of get on with it and have their own spheres of influence. But um, obviously things came to a point and there was a bit of a ruling class civil war. Mm -hmm. Just a little one. Just a little one as a treat. <laughs> Just to spice up history a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I also love the ways in which... <laughs> yeah, exactly. I also love the ways in which whenever you're reading about like any kind of interpretation which paints a lot of these um, large historical events as ruling class civil wars, like we did in the Charles Beard and stuff, um, it's very funny because like every now and then, you know, the sen the sen culottes don't really come up a lot in this, meaning the like property lists, like urban dwellers, peasants obviously come up in this. But when we think of the French Revolution, we really think of the like, you know, the masses rising up and guillotining people. This is why you can't trust the masses because they'll just get out the guillotine and they're bloodthirsty and they're stupid, et cetera, et cetera. But I always just love it whenever you're reading something like this and it's like, oh, and then the masses pop their head up because they want to get involved. You know, like obviously he's not getting rid of the agency of the saint culottes or anything like that. He's just saying that things kind of snowballed and they were the bourgeoisie was able to get support from them because they were kind of able, you know, they saw that their interests were also in getting rid of the nobility, but the bourgeoisie was not in like directly helping them. Right. I don't know. I just love it. Whenever you see like the mob pop up, it's just very funny because it's like, we'll get our revolution one day and it'll actually be a real one. Just like, Oh, there goes the mob. <laughs> I mean, that's a really important point that you bring up actually, because that's, um, I wanted to bring it back to some of the theory underpinning this because <laughs> Um, as much as this book is ostensibly about the French Revolution, really what it's about is various <laughs> different squabbles in Marxist theory. Um, and what George does... <laughs> George. Um, I don't know how to pronounce his surname, so I'm just not yeah. going to do it. Um, what he is... And you, you brought this point up before, actually. You alluded to this distinction that's sometimes offered up uh, as an analysis of um, the development of Marx into this sort of two phases the sort of with this sort of epistemic break in the middle right and it's associated usually with like Althusser's analysis of Marx right you've got the young Marx and you've got the the mature Marx you've got the Marx who is like um a humanist who's interested in like concepts of alienation and then you have the mature Marx for, for who's the primary primary sort of like um uh output is sort of capital and analysis of economics and who is considered to be much more sort of like economically determinist perhaps um he 
he provides quite an interesting it's quite important to come back to this point very quick briefly i think is because it does underpin this sort of like idea that there's all of this sort of like liberal assumptions in marx right is that like you have this event that happens you have all of these sort of like economic and political contestations that are happening in france and in england as well in different ways you have the french revolution and it takes his face sort of like um, political turn and what you have is this sort of analysis of politics and history which is predicated from the liberals not from the marxists there aren't even marxists at this point from the liberal historians who are like um this was all about class and it's about um changing sort of like economic epistems it's about a change in mode of production or mode of um, subsistence or what have you um and we've got to define it and they what develops is this sort of like concept of the bourgeois revolution this uh, as an understanding for explaining what's happening historically whereas britain in this time period doesn't have this experience of revolution but it does have some similar sense of like changing political and economic understandings of what's happening in history and what happens in in britain is the development of what comes to be called political economy right and marx early on is very interested in engaging with this sort of like uh, french analysis of history but once he sort of is introduced to political economy it's not that one supersedes the other but he becomes much more interested in um the study of and then the critique of political economy um and basically spends the rest of his life writing about capitalism and writing about what capitalism is and how it how it functions and whenever he talks about history he's usually talking about history in terms of how it's developed to now be capitalism and so for all of those people who all of those marxists who accident, accidentally end up falling into this trap of what brenner calls neo smithianism um there, there is obviously um textual evidence for that in marx but that is because of what we were saying before marx isn't actually engaged in historical study he's engaged in an economic study of capitalism and so therefore of course he's going to read capitalism into history because he's trying to work out how, to, how capitalism has come about but that doesn't mean you can take um what he's doing and um then say well okay feudalism had to become capitalism no we need to do what brenner says and look at feudalism in its own particularity and say okay feudalism doesn't have to become capitalism so why did it you know um but so I, I guess more importantly than that is that like um the point that he's making in this is that like there isn't really this epistemic break like marx does start his his political and academic uh, journey i suppose with an analysis of class relations one that starts off in a very sort of political way and then through an engagement with french and then british politics starts to take on this more political turn and it sees him sort of reject um liberal and hegelian understandings of class and develop his own understandings of class um but this is all really important because when we come back to this uh, wonderful three or four pages in this book <laughs> when he's actually defining what at least this author thinks marxist historical materialism is um he starts with class as being the core element to um what proper historical materialist analysis of history and events is so that's why this first um first bullet point is about um identifying class exploitation because he goes he goes with that sort of first section of the communist manifesto that says that like history is the history of various is class exploitation right and he sort of he, he waves away some of the the actual classes that are identified by marx um 
at the beginning of the Communist Manifesto. These ones specifically might not his- be historically true, but like in a sort of like um, abstract sense, uh, this is the core element to hi- history. And what's more important, this is the core element to historical development is sort of like class exploitation. Um, the 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 reality of one class uh, extracting a surplus from another one. Um, and then he goes back and says, well, okay, if we're going to do historical materials analysis, we need to look at any particular mode of production and say, okay, what are the relationships of class exploitation? Um, without imagining that, okay, this is this kind of, this form of feudal class exploitation is actually just a nascent form of what's going to become the capitalist form of class exploitation and say, no, okay, what's particularly particular to um, the feudal form of class exploitation? Um, and he makes this a motor force in history. And initially, I was a bit shocked by this because it's going back to what we read last week kind of thing. Um, we know that like in capitalism, you have the law of value and that sort of competition between capitalists is a sort of like a developmental force in the productive capacity of capitalism. Um, but he sort of, he makes an allusion to the fact that, oh, he, he um, asserts quite firmly that like similar processes not the same but similar processes happen under feudalism right you have this competition between the ruling classes over um the to extract the surpluses um and this is the kind of real substance of historical development um and so it's sort of like it's it's class relationships first before anything else if if you're going to look for a sort of like a, a, a base some kind of economic base it's not kind of like the productive it's not the the means of production. This is very much a kind of like anti-base superstructure model, but also an anti-technological determinist one. It's very much like it's the class relationships, not the kind of like um, technological underpinnings, which is the uh, fundamentals of historical materialism, I suppose. That makes sense. It's, it's all dialectical. It all, it's all it all ties itself together. I mean, he almost, Marx almost takes it a step further and says you actually need to just specifically look at where the alienation of the labor is happening. Look there, and that will lead you to then understanding the class relationships, and then that will lead you to understanding the development of private property and thus social development. Um, smart guy, I'll be honest. And it, yeah. it is, it's so interesting the way that communal is able to do this by like just being honest, by like, trying to basically say, okay, Marxists, let's take a look at what's actually going on. This critique is valid that the revisionists have given us. And if we're really going to be materialist and look at where this alienation is happening um, and not just, you know, picture in the mind's eye of the French revolution, we're going to find out our thesis is incorrect and the Marxist thesis was incorrect. But why was that? And it really leads you to see that like, the reason that Marx's thesis was incorrect about the French Revolution, right, that he just borrowed from the people that came before him is because he didn't do the type of analysis that he did on capitalism in capital, because it would have been impossible to do both of those things, right? Like even I was thinking even just for this book, um, Comnenal's book, that like what needs to actually be done, and he says this kind of, is that like someone kind of needs to come along and do what Charles Beard did in his analysis of the American Constitution to the French Revolution. Because there, you know, he talks a little bit about saying the bourgeois class was made up of people who did this and this and this. But to really understand the revolution itself, you would need to understand why these people acted the way that they did, what motivated them to. Because just calling someone a lawyer isn't enough. It's a you would have to basically say, well, where was Robespierre's interest, right? And why did Thermidor happen? 
you know, to Robespierre and all of this, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's just to just pause on Robespierre for a second. I thought it was really funny when he, he dedicates like one paragraph to talking about him by basically just saying that Robespierre was so far off the map by saying that here we are, like he drank the, his own Kool-Aid, right? By saying, you know, the bourgeoisie and the sans culottes, the masses were, you know, we all have the exact same interests. We love it. And then, you know, he goes down to the like Champ de Mars or whatever and is like, we're going to have a republic of virtue. And then like everybody was like, this sucks. This is such a bad idea, including the masses. Like everybody was like, this is so lame, dude. Uh, and then he uh, yeah, died a pretty brutal death um, in a reactionary phase. But basically what I'm trying to say is that this book isn't really enough and he recognizes that to do a proper materialist analysis because like the only thing even close to a proper materialist analysis of capitalism is the three volumes of capital and that was like marx's life work to do mm -hmm. right and he didn't even finish it he didn't even get to the point where he's able to talk about the state right so basically like being a historian and a sociologist <laughs> needs to needs to be a lot more about doing history and doing sociology and not just engaging in these academic debates where you pick a side and drink the Kool-Aid because you you have to be critical you have to be critical with Marx you have to be critical with everybody and in so doing you're you're going to have to go through records and you're going to have to you know Charles Beard even said in his tiny book that this isn't even close to what needs to be done to actually understand the Constitution. And he goes through and gives you effing like every bit of land that James Madison sold for his entire life, right? So, you know, to really understand history, you got to do history. There's, there's a really lovely quote from E.P. Thompson in this where he's saying that, like, if Marx had, like, found the secret code to the universe... <laughs> Don't you think he would have just written that book and been like, <laughs> here is the sort of underpinning of how it all works. And then he goes on to say, no, like, uh, historical materialism as a practice and to do it well, you've got to practice it. Yeah. Um, and what George is saying in this book is like, okay, if you want to, it, you can extrapolate from Marx's analysis of capitalism you can extrapolate from capitalism to find a, a mode of historical analysis if you want to but somebody needs to go and write the book feudalism right they need to yeah. go and identify okay so um we have sort of economic forms of exploitation and we have the law of value as sort of motor force in history and we have the tendential fall in the rate of profit perhaps as this sort of like um results resultant sort of like tendency toward crisis um but then you have to go back to feudalism and be like, okay, so and people do sort of this stuff. Okay, we don't have extra economic exploitation. We have we have extra economic exploitation rather, not economic exploitation. And we have this particular particular collection of classes, and we have these particular conflicts between the classes that are manipulating or influencing the development of the, the how that extra economic exploitation happens and that results in all these different wars and it happens in it results in all these different conflicts between all these princedoms and this kind of stuff um and it and maybe what it does is leads to the development of something like the french absolutist state which was like a tentative another way out of feudalism right kind of thing so you have to look at these modes of, and you have to go back to uh like uh sort of ancient slave modes of production and be like, okay, what was the state form here? And how did the relationship between the state forms allowing people to exploit more effectively also influence the position of politics in the Roman Republic or the Roman Empire, say, and like lead to all these sort of like different conflicts between all these different um, competing emperors and empires and this kind of stuff. Like, mm. um, 
it's almost like you need to do you need to do that but for like every grand duchy and every you know bishopric and throughout time and make it dynamic to really understand what's going on because uh i forget what it was i think it was the perry anderson that we read where he talked about the this nature this developing nature of class conflict under western feudalism that was a competition to kind of keep exploiting the land and that was very historically specific and very historically determined and you can't just apply that to like you know you might be able to apply it to like i don't know yorkshire and lancashire right but you can't apply it to like all of the holy roman empire in italy right like to really understand these relationships you would have to do capital but for everything and so that's probably the reason why we haven't gotten that yet right even with ancient mode too i mean what this is one of the problems with this adopting of this sort of like um uh liberal staged analysis of history right is we adapt these terms and then we're like okay we have to fit every every potential form of uh economic production that we ever find in history in any type of anthropological or historical or archaeological analysis we have to work out which kind of which one of these forms does it fit into kind of thing um and no like he's making the point in this and as you say perry anderson does as well like there's huge historical variety um and everything deserves to be analysed and studied in its historical specificity and not um, have some kind of um, abstract schema inflicted upon it for the purposes of saving Marxism and um, the sort of doctrinaire Marxism and the great... um, The scripture, the scripture of Marxist religiosity. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I'll I'll be honest, I'm dangerously close after this to kind of just doing away with the idea of modes of production entirely. And what I mean by that is really making a focus more on modes of exploitation, because modes of production is very, you can easily just say, oh, well, the method of producing the means of survival and feudalism was your basic uh, pyramidal hierarchy of, you know, peasant, knight, falconer you know, Bishop <laughs> King or whatever, right? <laughs> yeah. And and if you, but if you really want to do historical materialism, the focus needs to not necessarily just be on production. That's where the exploitation happens, but it needs to be on the exploitation itself. Mm-hmm. And in so doing, yeah, all of, all of these ideas just get blown out of the water about being easy transitions and these types of things. And I mean, this book ends before really discussing, well, wait a minute, when did France become capitalist or and why did it? And I think that one of the things that get a criticism that gets leveled at the like Brennerist school of thought, right, is that it can be very like methodologically nationalist and that it's like capitalism happened here and in this country. I don't know necessarily how I feel about this critique, but this is why a lot of people tend to side with uh what's his name wallerstein right because he talks about you know the world system right which is you know we all know how we feel about that and about the quantitative versus the qualitative but um yeah what i would have preferred communal to do a longer book i hate to say that but geez <laughs> <laughs> um i don't know have we touched on this his third bullet point recognition of historical continuity um mm. It seems important just to touch on because it kind of indicates things that we've said in previous episodes of this podcast, which we always like. We like to be proved nominally. We were right. right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So he's got. So so the first stage is the first aspect of historical materialism is like recognizing the reality of um, some form of class exploitation, some form of extraction of surplus from one class to another, and. The second one is sort of recognizing that quite often this takes some kind of state form and you need some kind of state structure that sort of supports 
that exploitation and allows it to take place. And the third one he's talking about is kind of like recognizing that um, historical development happens internal to modes of production as well. You do have different types of feudalism. You do have different types of capitalism. And so it's not like, okay, we have one fixed mode of production and then some mysterious transformation happens in France in 1870, whatever, and 79 or something. And, uh, and suddenly you're in capitalism, you know, no, 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 no. There is a, there is a, there is a developmental continuity to all of history. Um, and occasionally there is change, I suppose. Yeah. Well, and this is like one of the mistakes of the kind of postmodernist, right? That Ellen Meekson's Wood is like fucking idiots. You, you fools. When they study history, they go, whoa, man, things are like, man, the Soviet Union's God, man, the working class is like, oh, man, it's just like, there's nothing left, man. You know, we're, we're in something new. It's not even capitalism anymore, man. But this idea of historical continuity is like, well, no, fake news. Like when you go to work, your surplus is still being exploited entirely economically, right? Like, you know, goddamn postmodernists. Well, oh, dear. Um, <laughs> Well, we did it, Dan. We figured out historical materialism. This yeah. book... I don't this know whether book... we figured out the French Revolution. But... <laughs> oh, no. We have no idea what happened with the French Revolution. This book should not be about the French Revolution. This book should be about how, in studying the French Revolution, I unearthed what Marx actually said and why everyone's <laughs> an idiot but me. Yes. And yeah. uh, how to do historical materialism in three easy steps. I think we should make this YouTube video. <laughs> How to do a historical materialism. Yeah, according to George, uh, rest in peace. It was funny. I was like, uh, before I knew he died, I saw that he taught at York University. And I was like, oh, he's in the UK. That'd be so cool if we could like go up and see him. And then I was like, oh, York University, Toronto. Oh, okay. <laughs> I get caught up with that so many times that, I mean, like, obviously, uh, British colonial settlers went over there and just named <laughs> everything after the place that they left. Um, yeah. But... Uh, but I still get caught up by that. We Google remain... And suddenly, okay, I'm looking at whatever place <laughs> Alabama runs. Oh, New Brunswick. Oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> we remain unconvinced or uncertain. Might be French-Canadian. That's. I'll just, okay. I'll, I'll leave everybody yeah. with that. Yeah. We're uncertain <laughs> as to which type of Canadian he is or was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. As ever, your very humble hosts are uncertain <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> as to whether they have any understanding of what they've read or are talking yeah, exactly. about. Okay, so we're going to limit our understanding, our lack of understanding (laughs) purely to how to pronounce the name of the person. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And anything else we've gotten wrong, that's a disclaimer for the last 70 odd episodes. Um, (laughs) Really quick, Dan, last thing, because I know you have to go get your surplus exploited. Uh Um, Has has this, this book has been, I think, a kind of sea change in a lot of people's thinking when they come uh, along the Brennerism stuff and they come along this book. I was expecting something much more different. I was expecting it to like blow Brenner's out of the water, but basically like two people that he kind of brings up and then is like, yeah, they were right. is <laughs> like Robert Brenner and Ellen Mason's wood, which I find very funny, but it does build. Having said that it does build on their thought in a very interesting way. And maybe that's just a, that's just because, you know, he's doing specific historical research about a specific historical time that is very easy to just brush over and go transition and not actually study it. <laughs> Um, but still, I think still, still, I think that this has gotten me to legitimately think differently about the way that we study modes of production. And I do think, you know, I'm not going to do this because I don't want to sound like a prick whenever anybody says modes of production, but I do think that the idea of modes of exploitation is a convincing one and one that is perhaps more syntactically correct. Yeah. I'm, I am really delighted with the sort of like 
very simple breakdown of how to do historical materialism. It's definitely <laughs> going to, and we look, we love a simple breakdown. We love, I like oh, some very it. simple instructions. I like <laughs> Summarize your chapters in the last paragraph. That's the conclusion. <laughs> yeah, let's read the introduction, the conclusion, and the first and last paragraphs of every chapter, and make a podcast episode out of that. Um, so yeah, 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 yeah. But um, yes, very, very grateful for this this piece of work. It's a bit like past the parcel, where it's sort of wrapped in endless layers of uh, uh, literature review, but we do get down to yes. the bare bones. Yeah. Yeah. Well worth reading. I think on Twitter I said if you're going to read it, which everyone should read, I think it's chapter six, seven, and the conclusion because it is good. It's so funny because he goes the first hundred thirty pages are him being like French Revolution, French Revolution. Here's what everybody ever who's ever been alive and their dog has said about it: French Revolution. And then he, he just stops and doesn't mention the French Revolution for like the next hundred pages. I mean, it's like if, if if you want an interesting introduction to the sort of conflict between orthodox Marxist interpretation of history and the sort of Althusserian attempts to rescue and develop Marxist historical analysis, but then a criticism of that as well, then you're in the right place. You should definitely yeah. go and read like, yeah, definitely. the middle chapters of this book. <laughs> yeah. At one point, he started talking about differential rent one and two. And I was just like, buddy, I haven't even finished Capital Volume One yet. <laughs> it's like, come on, come on. Is this it, it, where he's talking about like history one and history two? He starts to add in these. I think, I I, think, I think so. that's just, oh, okay. Maybe, maybe that's something else. I think it like, one. maybe, maybe, I don't know. Yeah. Oh God! Anyway. Unless, unless I just skipped it. There, there are there are some little cul-de-sacs you could get lost in if you wanted to. So like, um, bring bring a good torch and some breadcrumbs and like try and stay on the beaten path. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, if you're going to be a historian, uh, you got to do the work. It's good stuff. Dan and I definitely not historians. We are not going to go through the archives. That does not sound fun. Um, no. Yeah, shame. Although, oh, yeah, somebody's got it. Somebody. If you if you are a historian and you're looking for something to do, do it. Read the Charles Beard book on the American Constitution and literally do that for your period of like transition of choice. Do it for the you French Revolution. Book, that book must exist on the French Revolution. Let's go. Let, let us know, listener. Yeah, let if us you've know. read if you've read if you've the, the definitive sort of like uh, Marxist analysis of the French Revolution, let us know. Yeah, but I mean, I mean more so just like the specific concrete relations that each like. Oh, actor I see. Talk had. about every particular actor and what their yeah. relationship was to the ideology, what was their economic interest in all of this, and uh, yeah, how much government debt did they hold? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and how much Western land did they have control over? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm. The this is also really quickly has made me think a lot just about rethinking about that Charles Beard book and about. Yeah, you could also call that a ruling class civil war and a junior partner in that ruling class, right? Because it's like, you know, the the John Adamses of the world and the George Washingtons were very much not opposed to continuing to live in a world of nobility, right? And again, that's just seen in concrete terms in those literal letters that I think Washington and Madison exchanged where they do the revolution and they're like, shit, should we go back to a king? <laughs> so junior partners but again, it, ruling class it, civil war. It, 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 I do get the impression from that book that there was far more capitalist class interest at play in the American Revolution sure. than there was in the French Revolution. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. But I'm, uh, yeah, I think just in terms of like the concrete actors, they could kind of take it or leave it, but they just wanted more, you know, control again over the power and surplus extraction that existed in their state or whatever. Mm -hmm. Makes you think about the potential for a ruling class civil war. I mean, now. I mean it, it implies that all of these revolutions that happened at this period of time actually weren't particularly interested in their ideological justifications. They just wanted to oh, get yeah. their guy in charge so that Which they I could see their own interests advance, kind of thing. Yeah, that's cool. Whether, whether like that's that. guy, that's like a 
uh, a short general, a short king general, or uh... <laughs> I was wondering where you were going with that. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> You mean Boris Johnson, right? Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> no, Rishi Sunak. Oh, oh yeah, dog. Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our yeah. um, current short king. Our current short king. We'll leave the listeners with the potential for a ruling class civil war now. Where could that potentially come from if something like this were to happen now, and the mob wasn't going to be involved in some kind of working class uh, good revolution? Where, where could that? Uh, where could that come from? We're seeing kind of cleavages in the bourgeoisie with interest rates and wanting to keep interest rates low versus wanting to keep interest rates high so maybe mm. maybe something like that's coming down the pipeline where, where is the universal class jack where are they <laughs> oh, the universal when are they going to sort it out for us i will find the universal class i will search every nook and cranny until i find the universal <laughs> class um okay uh-huh. you gotta go to work i've got to go to work yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i've got to i've got to I, just to correct for what you were saying before i now work for a non-profit so i think i'm probably going to going to exploit my own labor <laughs> how dare rather you than have somebody else exploit it for me <laughs> I think. you're an entrepreneur <laughs> i'm a schmuck That's yeah, yeah join the club all yeah. right well if you're not a schmuck you're probably not listening to this so yeah. well, i don't know if you're that. still listening yeah, yeah, um, exactly. Thank God. you for listening this far. Yeah, um, I'm going to finish myself. Uh, it's uh, a continued and great pleasure of both of ours that some number of you do continue to listen. Yeah, and God uh, bless you. you. Yeah, gives yeah. us purpose and meaning, you know. Otherwise, uh, uh, how sad is that? It actually does. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, we'll uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with something that we haven't decided on. Dan and I are going to talk about that right now before he goes to work. Let's do it. See ya. Bye bye. The music you heard this episode was Music to Kill Bad People To by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. If you like this song, you can check it out and much, much more on their Bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com. Be sure and follow us up on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you like what you heard, be sure and tune in next week for some more comedy discussion. Till next time. Whoa.